Pod peeps across the digital domain. It's the Deacon's Pod, where spirituality and justice meet real American life in the 21st century. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulist affiliate Deacons, Deacon Tom and Deacon Drew. Hello, this is Deacon Drew. How is everybody doing today? Hello, this is Tom. Doing well. How is everyone? It's Deacon Dennis here. Glad to see you guys. Well, it's good to be in touch with my friends again. How is everybody doing today? And uh, I notice we have a new face here. I don't know how he yes. got in here. Yes. I don't know yes. how he got in here, but uh, it's a Deacon, big day for us. It's a big I day. I think he left the back door open. Oh, okay. <laughs> that voice you hear is Deacon Mark Aislin. He's a Paulist Deacon affiliate, and he's joining us today. So, Mark, how is everything in your house? It's going great. I, you know, it's such a pleasure to be with you guys. Our listeners don't know, but we know one another in the Deacon Affiliates program as brothers in this program. And I've been listening to you for a long time, enjoying your podcasts. It's just a pleasure to be with you. Mark, where are you? So I am in Bethesda, Maryland, Archdiocese of Washington. I am a Northern New Englander, so I'm bringing some diversity to this group since we have two Southern New Englanders Yankee. in the group. So balancing <laughs> that out. Yeah, yeah the well, French actually, and the Irish. We made yeah. New England. I'm from the New Jersey section of New England. Yeah, right, 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 right. So we have a great a great guest today, Diana McElintal from Team RCIA, not just from Team RCIA. She and her husband founded and run Team RCIA. And we'll hear a lot more from her in a little while. But, you know, we talk a lot about the catechumenate and the and catechetical issues and catechesis. I mean, uh, Dennis. And catamarans. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Catastrophes. What was the other yeah, ones yeah. they were doing? And Catalina going to Catalina. Catalina. Catamaran. Yeah. So just so <laughs> if we do have any kind of first-time listeners or, or, Catholic, or people who may not be Catholic yet or people who just don't know what those words mean, Dennis, catechesis, what does that mean? Okay. For the ordinary people is what you're saying. For the regular people, not the geeks, the theological geeks like us. I wouldn't Cat call myself a theological geek. I'm kind of like a normal geek, but go yeah. ahead. I was just trying to upgrade you. Just no, thank go, you. Thank take you. it while you can. So, uh, you know, these words, catechesis, catechetical, it's talking about teaching the faith. That's basically what it is. It's teaching the faith. A catechist is someone who is the teacher of the faith. That's the technical term which... You know, people in ministry, we use these terms because, you know, just like every other organization or business or whatever, you you know, you have shorthand, you know, you know everybody knows what you're talking about and you use the technical word. Like in medicine, you know, they, they use the technical word for things. So a catechesis is teaching people the faith, someone new especially. A catechist is the person who teaches the faith. A catechumen is someone who is not a Christian but who wants to be one. So okay. you say, well, you know, I really don't have a religion and I, I want to be part of the Catholic Church. You go to the RCIA, OCIA, depending on how they, they call it, either the Order of Christian Initiation of Adults, so that's OCIA, or the Right of Christian Initiation of Adults, RCIA, and the, that is the program in which we bring someone into the church. And so that person would be a catechumen. Now, if they are baptized, you will be referred to as a candidate for, you know, full union with the church, because you're not a catechumen if you're baptized. I mean, you're baptized Methodist or whatever, you're baptized. So those are the terms that we're going to be using and throwing around. So it's basically teacher, teaching, and pupil what this stuff talks about. So, Thank you, Dennis. And then also, I believe it's my understanding that this podcast is dropping on February the 14th, Valentine's Day. And so I would ask our listeners to listen to the end, and you will find a beautiful Valentine's Day prayer written by our guest, Diana McElintal. Yeah, there's something in this for everybody. You know, we've got something for the people who are the ministers who do this, she talks to them about the process. We've got something for the people who are on their way out of the church. And we've got something for the people who are thinking about coming into the church and seekers and, and something for the people on Valentine's Day. So 
And when you consider what you paid for this, hey, you know, <laughs> you're getting your money's worth for sure. I think it's a great conversation that we have about the whole process of RCIA and love how it connects to the Paulist mission of reaching out to those on the margins as you have been doing with this podcast. Hopefully we'll be able to touch some folks with this. So, hey, thanks for letting me be part of it today. Oh, nice. I'm glad you were here. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'd like to mention that we have now over 5,000 downloads, but it's really gratifying to us. So we really thank all of you for listening. And again, we invite you to communicate with us through our website. You can leave us a message. We do respond to those messages. We reply to everyone. And we just love the fact that people are listening. So let's listen to Diana McElintal. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Diana McElintal is an author and speaker on Catholic liturgy, music. Of, she composes her own music and sings it, and it's just wonderful. The Catechumenate, Prayer, and Intercultural Ministry. She holds a Master of Arts in Theology from St. John's University School of Theology and Seminary in Collegeville, Minnesota, and has served as a liturgist, music, and catechumenate director in Campus Parish and diocesan ministries for 30 years. Most recently, she concluded 15 years of service as the Director of Worship for the Roman Catholic Diocese of San Jose in California. She also serves on the Board of Advisors for Liturgical Press and has previously served as an editorial advisor for GIA Publications. Among her books that she has written are Your Parish is the Curriculum, RCIA in the Midst of the Community, for Liturgical Press, The Eucharist Catechist, Guide, St. Mary's Press, Living Liturgy, Spirituality, Celebration and Catechesis for Sundays and Solemnities, from Liturgical Press, Catholic Marriage, a Pastoral and Liturgical Commentary, Liturgy Training Publications, and Joined by the Church, Sealed by a Blessing, Liturgical Press. Diana and her husband, Nick Wagner, are the co-founders of Team RCIA, which we're going to talk a lot about today an online resource center for Catholic parishes and dioceses that are forming Christians for life. Through Team RCIA, Diana and Nick provide online and in-person training to almost 20,000 RCIA ministers and volunteers worldwide. And finally, I need to mention this. In 2022, she and her husband, Nick Wagner, completed a 408-day road trip of the United States in their two-door Mini Cooper. <laughs> They traveled 29,682 miles. They hit 41 states and the District of Columbia. They had eight pieces of luggage in a two-door Mini Cooper. Yeah. Five new tires, two flights, one ferry, and with no itinerary. And interesting fact, Nick and Diana remain married today. (laughs) Welcome, Diana McElintal, how are you? Thank you so much, Deacon Drew. I am, I'm really happy to be here with such a wonderful group of deacons and your team in the background. So thanks for the invitation. Well, we're looking forward to it. So let me start off like this. The question that we almost always ask our guests, and we usually ask it somewhere halfway through or toward the end, our question is, what do you say to those who are standing in the door of the Catholic Church, either mm-hmm thinking about coming in or thinking about going out. And before I give you the opportunity to answer that question, I'm asking it because you and your husband are Team RCIA, which seems to me is all about the process of those standing in the door, wondering whether they should come in. Can you give us a quick overview of it? How did it get started? And what does it seek to do? What does it do? So tell us. (laughs) Yeah, Team RCIA is the initiative company business that my husband and I started in 2007. It came out of the sense that we saw catechumenate ministers, RCIA volunteers and parish staff, they would go to these amazing workshops. And Nick and I were part of that endeavor as well through the North American Forum on the Catechumenate. And we would do these wonderful five-day, four-day, two-day workshops with catechumenate teams. And then they would go home and we would constantly hear from them that 
there were, they had no support, no resources, no place to ask questions. So this was back in the olden days of 2007. Blogs were still kind of brand new. There was nothing like a podcast. The Catholic Church minister wasn't really online just yet, but they were starting to. So Nick and I thought, well, let's do something online. Let's create a blog. And it really just started as a blog on blogger.com, if you remember that. And we just started writing resources, writing short articles that would help catechumenate ministers in the questions that they would come up with every day doing their ministry. And over time, it really just started to grow where we started providing resources in different other formats in videos and in webinars. We started doing webinars back in like 2009, a monthly webinar. And so we have just a whole treasure trove of recorded webinars. And some of the earlier ones, I go back and I look at it and the technology was just so primitive in what we had done and really training people on how to get online, how to log into a webinar, how to do all of this. But over the years, we've just really grown it as a community worldwide. And so at our monthly webinars, we'll have about 500 people signed up online at a, any given time at a webinar. It would be maybe half of that in, in person. But we have people from Canada, Australia, Trinidad, Tobago, from Fiji, from England, from just all different places around the country wanting to answer that question that you started with, Deacon Drew. The seeker standing at the door deciding, is this something that I want to pursue? Is this community worth it? Our entire thing is to help parish ministers be the answer for that. And that answer is constantly come and meet Jesus, not first and foremost in this parish community. The wonderful, beautiful thing about the catechumenate is that it doesn't start in the church. It has to start in people's ordinary daily interactions with everyday strangers. And that road trip that you mentioned really taught me something about what Pope Francis calls the style of God, which is nearness, closeness, and that the catechumenate, if we really take it seriously, starts with that nearness and closeness to the other, and throughout the entire process is imbued with that style, that proximity, because you can only communicate Jesus by standing side by side with a person, walking with them. And so we start by standing with the person in that liminal space, in that doorway. And we try to see the world from their eyes before we do any kind of catechesis or formation. What one of Pope Francis's phrases, which I really like, is we have to learn the smell of the sheep, of our Mm -hmm. own sheep. And, Mm -hmm. And Tom... Casey here loves that phrase accompaniment. And that's what we're talking about. I have to tell you, when I was reading, you know, preparing for today and reading through all this, it really struck me how Paulist you you are. You have a very Paulist sensibility, if I may say that, or maybe the Paulists have adopted Team RCIA sensibility. I don't want to give credit. I started with the Paulists, the community that first started to show me how liturgy worked like really worked. Right. My origin story is that I got into this as an eight-year-old. I just wanted to be a rock star. So I joined the choir. Yeah, I joined the (laughs) choir because I just wanted to be famous. And I thought, you know, some big movie person was going to come to my church and discover me in the choir, singing and playing guitar or piano and say, we must have you. Well, but, having seen you on YouTube, I think it's only a matter of time before that happens. Okay? Uh, well, <laughs> very good. I'll keep my calendar open. You should. <laughs> but, so. it, but when I got to UCLA, the University <laughs> mm-hmm. of California, Los Angeles and the Newman Center there. Okay. 
And I went to mass there. I think the first one was Ash Wednesday, my freshman year. There was something there that I had not experienced and encountered in the years that I had been playing music at church in my home parish or in high school. And it was the Paulists who were there and the entire team that they gathered around with them took seriously the power of the liturgy to change lives. And so that meant music that that included not only the traditional treasures of our church history, but the best of the current compositions, as well as a really kind of controversial thing back in the, what would this have been, the late 80s, early 90s, including music that was not in English, because we were a, this is Los Angeles, we had at a university, a world-class university, we had people from all over the globe celebrating with us what is their music how do they pray and so incorporating that so music preaching was the number one way that the paulist community there communicated the gospel to all of us and they took it seriously they took seriously the document on preaching from the united states bishops before the current one fulfilled in your hearing they took seriously the text in there that said that the homilist's job is not to necessarily do exegesis on the scripture text. Their primary job is not necessarily to interpret the scripture. Their primary role is to interpret the lives of the people who hear that scripture through the lens of the scripture passage. And so they, the Paulists there gathered a community of students to do reflection on the upcoming readings so that the homilist could speak through the voice of the community and not just his voice alone. And in that exercise, help us listen to the voice of God. And so the Paulist really just opened up my eyes to liturgy and put me on the right path and gave me my, my first copy of the Vatican II documents when I started working there as a music director. Father Tom Jones said, you must read this document if you want to be a woman in the church, if you, want, if you are a young woman, which you are in the church, you must know this document inside and out because people will question you. People will wonder what your authority is. But if you can stand firm on the vision of the church from the Second Vatican Council, you can you can change people's lives in the work that you do. And that was just the best gift that the Paulists could have given me. So I'm eternally grateful to you guys. Well, I noticed on your website, and just to kind of bring this around one more time with the Paulists, this is a quote from your web, Team RCIA website. And by the way, for the listeners, it's teamrcia.com. You can find it right there. And there is just a wealth of information. And on a personal basis, I'm going to be spending a lot more time there because we have a new pastor in my church, and I am now doing the RCIA or OCIA, which we can talk about in a minute, in my church, and I need help. So I'm going to be coming to you for help. But this quote I love because it just, again, reminded me of the Paulist Fathers. A quote, a catechumenal culture that makes missionary disciples. I mean, Dennis, doesn't that really speak to what we're doing here? Hopefully. (laughs) <laughs> on a good day we're all we're always hopeful here so you know the other thing is there's so much help on your website and one of the articles that is there is the best practices for turning seekers into disciples oh and that's one more thing seekers that's a word we the policy use seekers a fa- father hecker i guess put us to take took us down that path originally and i don't know if we have time in our podcast today to go through all these these six they're really six best practices but they make so much sense and i want to just mention the first one in connection with something that just happened to me i was i just mentioned that i'm going to be handling rcia in our parish and as such i attended an archdiocesan meeting where the head of our RCA, Father Mantia, was talking and explaining the difference to us about adult faith formation and why it's not RCA, why they're not the same and how they're different, but how they can be so complementary. But in the midst of all this, 
And he had no idea that I was even listening. He didn't know who I am. He doesn't, I, you know, I would hope that he knows about our podcast, but I'm going to guess he doesn't. And he certainly didn't know that we were going to have you as a guest this week. And this was only last week that this happened. He goes, I just want to mention Team RCIA. He goes, I know some of you have a lot of connection with them. And I have to say, they have, quote, really, really good stuff, end quote. And, quote, they do a fabulous job, end quote. So you've got the endorsement of my archdiocese. And I said to myself, okay, check mark. I'm, that's where I'm going. <laughs> but having, oh, that's wonderful. Having said all that, one of the other big points he made is your number one tip. Make sure seekers experience a step-by-step gradual process. He made the point that this is lifelong. Entering into RCIA is a lifelong conversion process. Mm-hmm. You want to speak to that a little bit? Can what, yeah. I mean... Obviously, you agree with it. You wrote it, too. Well, so those best practices come directly from the ritual text, the right of Christian initiation of adults, paragraph four and five. Those are six characteristics of the catechumenate. And your archdiocesan director is completely right that the catechumenate and faith formation are complementary. And it goes even deeper than that. The entire way we are to form faith for whomever, for whatever opportunity, for whatever sacrament, in all circumstances, should incorporate the characteristics of the catechumenate that comes straight out of our catechetical directory, the general directory for catechesis and the the new directory for catechesis, that those dynamisms of the catechumenate should be infused in all faith formation, in, in everything that we do to form faith. And so that, that first characteristic that this is a gradual process of conversion to Christ for the seekers. So we're talking about the unbaptized. From the very beginning of a person's life, God is constantly calling all of us, all of us in many different ways. And the first ritual of the catechumenate ritualizes that call and response. One of the beautiful prayers that is in the current text for that ritual says something like, we thank you, Father, for you have sought and summoned this person in many different ways. And today they answer and respond in our midst. And so the rite of acceptance into the order of catechumens ritualizes that call and response. But that's not the last time God continues to call, and we are called to respond throughout the entire catechumenate, leading up to baptism and confirmation in the Eucharist, and beyond. The baptismal catechumenate only works because all of us, you and me, all the baptized, are constantly on this journey of conversion. The Catechumenate, the, one of the principles there, I think it's principle number four on conversion, that the RCIA says the people who are doing the conversion is not first and foremost the seeker, but the community of the faithful. By our own renewal of conversion and at, by our example, the seekers and the catechumens and the candidates learn to turn their hearts more readily to Christ. And so if we aren't doing that every day, and that's part of the the gradual nature of the catechumen, it doesn't begin in September when the Holy Spirit shows up, and it doesn't end in May when the Holy Spirit goes on vacation. The call of God to turn more and more toward Christ is every day, and therefore we are called to keep doing that throughout our, our entire lives. So the catechumenate trains the parish into that ongoing lifelong from the beginning of our existence all the way to the last day of our lives, that ongoing turning toward God, which is constant. And so faith is really active. It's not a passive thing we do once in a while. It's just constant in our lives. It should be a way of life, right? It's the Mm -hmm. way. As I look at these principles, again, we could spend all day on this, but I had a specific question. How do we enlist 
Now, you're going to have the RCA team. You're going to have the people who want to get involved. You're going to have the sponsors of the catechumenates and the godparents and whatever. You have all that. But the, the pew, the parish community, because, I mean, number two is it's a parish community thing. But without going that into detail, how do you enlist the people in the pews to help us invite the seekers? Mm-hmm. Do you have any tips, if you will, or thoughts on that? <laughs> So this is this was a huge aha moment for me when so here's my copy the people on the podcast won't be able to see but I'm showing the guys my beaten up worn out copy of the rite of christian initiation of adults and I've read this ritual text backwards and forwards and suddenly okay. I'm reading paragraph 4 paragraph right. 4 the This process is a a gradual process that takes place in the midst of the community. That phrase, in the midst of the community, struck Mm -hmm. me because Mm -hmm. all this time, and I was doing this at UCLA at the Newman Center when I was one of the co-directors for the catechumenate there, we had this really rigorous process where RCIA, RCIA took place Wednesday night, 730 every Wednesday while school, while the university was in session. And we formed this amazing RCIA community of catechumens, candidates, sponsors, the team. We had a huge team. And it was a wonderful weekly gathering. But we realized people didn't know anyone outside of that Wednesday, Mm -hmm. 730. We would baptize them at the Easter Vigil, and then they'd disappear, or they'd say, well, can't we just keep coming to RCIA? We love Wednesday night so much. Couldn't right. we just keep doing that? Mm-hmm. And at first, I thought that was great, because, hey, look, RCIA is huge. But then I go and read that text. This is a gradual process that takes place in the midst of the community. The community is not Wednesday, 730. The community is the entire parish community and beyond. How are we were failing in our responsibility of using people to Christ? We were telling them Christ only happens at Wednesday, 730 in our parish lounge, but Christ is happening everywhere. And so how do we get the faithful, the people in our pews, the people who just show up for mass, who come late and leave early? How do we get them involved, quote unquote, involved in the RCIA? They never will. They never will. They will never become a sponsor or come to your Wednesday night, 730 or join your team. They won't do it. But that's not what the catechumen, what the ritual text asks them to do. It says in paragraph 9.1, this is the period of evangelization, the people of your parish community should talk to the strangers, should talk to seekers, invite them into conversation, and even invite them into their homes. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, wait a minute. But this is how you get your parish on your RCIA team. You simply do what the ritual says. And so in one community, we asked like three or four people who are not, they're not involved hugely involved in the parish, but they were constant parishioners. We saw them sitting in the middle of the pew. We -hmm. knew their name, but they didn't really do much else in the parish. So we asked them, you know, could we ask you to just have dinner with a seeker and their sponsor once a year, maybe twice a year, not more than that. And all you don't have to do anything. You don't have to know anything just be nice to them, have dinner. You can order pizza if you want, or you can make dinner or whatever it is. Just let them be in your home so they could see mm-hmm. Catholics in the wild and see <laughs> what it's like to yep. be Catholic. That's all. Mm-hmm. Just be yep. Catholic in front of them. And so we would, when a seeker would come and call or email We'd say, well, we'd, we want to introduce you to one of our parishioners and they would love to have you over for dinner. Let's get you together. And we have there a couple of other people from the community accompany them to this parishioner's home and they would just have dinner and a nice conversation. And so the result of that was the seeker 
would come back and say, hey, that was really nice. It was nice to meet new people and get to know some people. And I learned some things about being a Catholic and what you do at home as a Catholic. And that was just really nice. The surprising thing was the people who were hosting the seekers, the families and the individuals who made the dinner, they were on fire. They were like, send Mm -hmm. us another one. Send Mm -hmm. us another person. Because... All They didn't have to do any work. They just had to do what they normally do. And that's the beauty of the catechumenate. It not only trains us in a ongoing life of faith and conversion, it trains us to just live in a normal, ordinary way, our faith out loud in front of other people. And that is evangelization. That is... It- what the catechumenate says we are to do to evangelize. That's fantastic. It sounds like the Acts of the Apostles, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, I was just wondering, you know, in listening to you and reading, I think you called this turning RCIA upside down, which I really love the idea. What do you say to people who say, you know, I've got, I've got less than 3% of my parish community involved in activities I have the archdiocese telling me what to do. I have direction from the parish leadership, pastoral council, or a pastor. In other words, there are all these restrictions on what I can do. How does someone in that particular situation be able to explore what you're doing? Yeah. yeah. Oh, we get that question a lot at Team RCIA. It, it's usually phrased in the sense of, well, my pastor would never let me do that. You know, they're stuck or they're confined either by choice or by imposition to that Wednesday, 730. That's what is expected to be RCIA. And the sense of community doesn't get rid of that. It's not that, okay, you replace Wednesday, 730 with this other idea. It's that it's integrated. And so we tell people with that question, Well, your pastor would not object to you just having a conversation with someone after mass, right? Or going out for coffee. Just don't call it RCIA. Don't call it the catechumenate. Just call it engaging with a person who wants to know more about who Jesus is and is curious because that's what we're called to do. And so there are so many things that we allow ourselves to feel like we're restricted in living out our faith when really for one example for example there we had a catechumen in one parish and my husband and I were leading the gathering after the dismissal of the catechumens it was also the same day as the installation of our new pastor and the bishop was present for this installation And so we had this beautiful mass, and then we dismissed the catechumen, and we accompanied her to the classroom, quote-unquote classroom, where we're going to break open the word and share some faith. And after about 20 minutes or so, we hear the mass let out, and they're having the parish fiesta and this huge party in the parish hall right next door to where we are gathering with our catechumen and there's music and food. We could smell the food. And my husband and I are looking at one another thinking, what are we doing here? How are, why are we trying to teach this catechumen about our faith when the faith is happening right next door and it's a lot more fun? And so we, we said, okay, <laughs> let's get out of this classroom. Let's go have some food. Let's introduce you to the bishop. Let's introduce you to the new pastor. Let's talk to people in the parish. And that was so much more filling for us and for our catechumen. She got a deeper sense of church than any kind of lesson or conversation we could have had just on our own. So look at what your parish is already doing in addition to your Wednesday 730 structure and see how can you incorporate things that are already happening in your parish and say, well, let's just go there and see what Jesus says to us at that gathering. Because, you know, wherever two or three are gathered, there Jesus Mm -hmm. is. So just don't call it RCIA. Just call it living out your faith in parish, because that's what we are 
trying to train this person to do, to live their faith in this Christian community. Let's switch up just a little bit and take it from the other direction, from the perspective of the person maybe who's starting to step away, once thinking of leaving the church, which would involve, I guess, maybe we talked about in the very beginning of this podcast, the distinction between RCIA and adult faith formation. What do you have to say to that person? Forget the church and the ministers, but what do you have to say to that person Mm -hmm. who's been a lifelong Catholic and is just fed up, angry, bored, Mm -hmm. whatever? Mm -hmm. And I mean, and maybe you don't have the same thing to say to each one of those people, but what can you tell us about that? How can you help that? How can we help that person? Help us to help that person. Well, I think you made a really good insight there, Deacon Drew, that the answers that I'm giving here, the answers that any of you would give cannot be the same answer for every single person. And the catechumenate says that as well, that this process has to vary because God's grace works in different ways in each person. And so one of the beautiful things that we did on that road trip that you mentioned was to connect with friends who love the church, who just like I do, love the church, love the mission of Christ, love the way that we can help heal wounds in the world in this community of faith. And yet they are standing on that, in that doorway, that liminal space that goes both ways, inside or out. And we would have these conversations, usually after a lovely dinner and a few drinks and all of that. And I'd ask them, so why do you stay? Why do you stay in the church when so much continues to disappoint us? You know, we we have entered into this as lay people for myself. You know, I don't have to work for the church. I can go and do something else, but I have chosen to commit myself to this ministry in the church. Why do I stay and why do other people like me continue to devote so much passion and energy to this endeavor? And I think one of the things is, We have to honor the woundedness that people experience, the grief that we have and the despair that we often have and the disappointment that we encounter. We have to honor those. We can't just say, well, you know, just push on or ignore them. We know what happens when we have ignored the wounds and sins of our church. Right. And Pope Francis has given us the beautiful gift of the Synod, a practice of deep listening, not only to the joys, but to the griefs, the anxieties of the Church. And as the Vatican II, Gaudium et Spes says, you know, nothing authentically human fails to have an echo in the Christian person's attention. And so these joys and anxieties, these griefs need to be shared and honored and listened to. And then only together in that gradual process of conversion, that gradual journey that all of us continue to be on, we can accompany one another. Sometimes accompaniment means staying in that liminal space, staying in that liminal space. And even if the discernment is to turn and walk out, it doesn't mean God has walked out on that person. It doesn't mean that we stop accompanying that person. The beauty of our faith is that God is present constantly. And so wherever a person is, we can continue to journey with them and accompany them because that's part of the grace as well. So there's constantly hope. But it's not just blind hope. It's really attuned to the needs of each person. You know, in some ways, it's similar to a question I had put down here, which I'm not sure if this is really a question or not. But let's assume the hypothetical of the person who comes into RCIA. They are already baptized, but they, were, they haven't been in the church in years, and they need to be confirmed. Occasionally, the reason for being confirmed is, I want to get married 
or I, in, in one instance I'm aware of, I, I want to be confirmed because I've been asked to be a sponsor for some another a young kid who's being confirmed. So I need that. So they're not really coming in because they're seeking God. At least they don't think they are, or they don't know they are. They're coming in for some very, what I, they would consider a practical reason. I, I want to get your take on it, but before I do, I just if I may share one quick story. Years and years ago, I went to a cornerstone. I, I attended a cornerstone retreat, and I don't know if everybody here knows what a corner. It may be a local thing, but it's an in-parish retreat where the parishioners are invited to stay overnight Friday night, stay all day Sunday. And either end with a mass on Saturday night or depending or Sunday, depending on how intense this particular cornerstone is. People come in and share their faith, different faith topics. It's been a long time since I've been in the cornerstone, so I may be leaving some of it out. But it's an intense three-day session among the parishioners of a retreat in-house, basically. So the first night on a Friday night, we go around the table introducing ourselves. Everybody had to introduce each other. Because frankly, there were parishioners from different parishes in this one. So we all had to meet each other. And this one man, and it was all, it's either all men or all women in my experience. And this one man says, oh, look, I'm only here because my wife said I needed to come. I don't really need this. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be here in good faith. I'm going to listen. I'll be good, but I don't need it. So I don't really have a lot to share about this. I mean, you know, I go to mass and that's all, that's all I'd like to say. That was Friday night at about eight o'clock. No one pressured this man no one said you should do this you should do that because all of us were just lay people around the table like okay fine you know whatever we told our stories by noon saturday he was crying i mean literally crying in front of us like i never realized you know how much i need god and how much and you all and this i loved it he just jumped in without knowing he maybe jesus the holy spirit was clearly at work pulling him in I sense that may be a similar experience to people who join RCAA for the practical reason rather than the spiritual reason. Do you have yeah. anything? Have you had experience in that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things that Pope Francis says is that, well, he just recently said it in his latest document on God's desire for us. Desiderio, desideravi, you know, that <laughs> letter on how God desires to be with us with the deepest desire. And it's all about the liturgy and the Eucharist and how in that moment we are face-to-face with God's desire for us. Well, Pope Francis says, and our, our church teaches that God constantly desires us, is constantly knocking on the door of our heart at every given moment. We're never done. God's never done desiring us. And so one of the things that we try to encourage catechumenate teams and people who do sacramental prep, so confirmation coordinators, marriage coordinators, anyone who's doing any kind of catechetical endeavor, that even if a person, even if they say, I'm just here to get married, I'm just here to get confirmed, I'm just here for to get my child First communion. That's wonderful. That's the entry into God's desire that is happening in their life. And God's going to keep, in big and small ways, keep knocking on that person's heart throughout that entire process to get them to open their heart even more to God. And what we have to do as parish ministers, as catechumenate ministers, as sacramental coordinators, is not get trapped or tempted to just say, okay, you said you wanted to be confirmed. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to do service hours. You have to come to class. And next May, you'll be confirmed. If we present that, then we have, we have missed the opportunity to let God's desire come even deeper into that encounter with the Christian community. So, That's why in the characteristics of the baptismal catechumenate, one of the characteristics is this sense of paschal mystery. Everything is Mm. about the paschal mystery. And it's that sense of dying to some part of ourselves that we might rise to a, a new way of life in Christ. So what in our life right now is God calling us to let go of? What is keeping us? 
from experiencing that overwhelming joy that the gospel promises us in Christ. What are we afraid of? And if we, in our process of leading a person closer to Christ through whatever sacrament they're preparing for, whatever stage of life they're in, God will find that crack of an opening and blow it open in God's time. You know, our job is not to make that happen. Our job is to provide the opportunities for that to happen. That is a beautiful and also a scary kind of thing because there's no program for that. There's no book that says, okay, Mm. do this on day one and then next day do this and do that and then you're done. It's that real intimate, unique, personal accompaniment with each Mm. person. Deacon Dennis reminded me about that word liminal. You know, I tossed that out several times here. We're as church, as people of faith, really, we live in that liminal space. That's what Advent is all about. The liminal space is an in-between space. It could be a physical space like the doorway, or more in the sense that the church talks about it. It's that sense of where God is most present in that unknown, where we can go either one way or the other way. And God stands with us there in that middle ground and draws us to one path or another. And so in each person's life, they are at times very much in a liminal space in their life, in a middle ground where they're trying to decide one path or another path. And so our job is to sit with them and discern with them so that they could listen closely to where the Holy Spirit is moving them in that moment. And that sounds like what happened to your person in that retreat. There there was an opportunity to break open in that middle ground, that uncomfortable, outside of the norm, ordinary time of retreat where God could do God's work. And when I think back on it, clearly it was God, because no one at the table tried to change him. No yeah. one even touched it. You know yeah. you know what I mean? It was all came to him through the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I'd like to ask, uh, before we, we leave this topic, we've been talking a lot about the ministers that try to help people come into the church in this Rite of Christian Initiation, RCIA program, which is what the program that most parishes use to bring people in, new people. And we've talked about the people who are in the liminal space in that doorway and thinking, I'm looking at the outside. I'm not looking at the inside. I'm, I think I want to go this way. I'd just like to ask, could, do you have any tips? If you could talk to some, let's suppose that we, still, we have a, you know, a seeker listening to this, because that really, hopefully, are the people we're reaching, not ministers in the church, but what would you tell them? Like, if I'm a seeker, I'm an honest person. I mean, there's a lot of dishonest people that, you know, it's like you talk to them, it's like, you know, you're not serious. This is, I don't know what you're doing, but you're not, you don't want to find anything. You know what I mean? They are seekers, not interested in finding, you know, and it's like, okay, what would you say to an honest seeker? How could they help themselves? How could they find God? What kind of advice would you give them that if they are honest and they really want to meet God, what should they do based on, you know, your wealth of experience in this ministry and dealing with it? What can they do? That's a beautiful question, Deacon Dennis. So this is something that I really try to practice in my own life. And it's something that all of us really should do. And going back to the catechumenate, this is the methodology for formation that the church gives us. This is a It's called mystagogy, a mystagogical way of living. And so that Greek word really is just about it literally studying the mystery, studying, entering into the mystery. mystery. And in order to do mystagogy, you need a mystagogue, a person who will help, will lead you to see where God is. And our scriptures tell us that you can't see God face to face. You never know when God is going to appear. And that's part of another Greek term, kairos. We've heard of kairos retreats. Kairos 
yes means God's perfect time, but it literally means the perfect opportunity for God to catch us, the perfect opportunity for God to catch us. And so what we have to do is constantly be looking for God. And so for a person who's really seeking and they're, they want to find God, I could say to them, I can imagine saying to them something like, well, today, just know that you're going to see God somewhere in some way and just be ready for when that happens. And then notice when you feel great joy or notice when you feel great sorrow or empathy for another person or just notice when you are overwhelmed with love for your spouse or your child or someone in your life important to you and then just know that that was God in some way knocking on your door and then I could ask them at the end of the day so tell me where you saw God today tell me how God appeared to you and if they can't answer that, I ask them, well, where did you feel happiest today? What happened? Tell me about that. Who, did, who was there? What were you thinking about? How did you feel in that moment? And then as the mystagogue, as the person accompanying them, I could say, well, you know, in my life, that something similar like that has happened. And I knew that was God because, or I could say, you know, there's in this scripture text, this person in our scriptures had that exact same encounter, that exact same thing that happened to you mm. happened to them. And here's what happened there. And so you're constantly starting with the person's real life, real experience, and connecting that to how God is constantly present. And so it's... Uh, that mystagogical formation can be, or conversation, can be scary at first for the person who is talking to a seeker because there's no script. And it can be very surprising what the person comes up with. Yet, the spirit is so creative and the spirit will surprise all of us if we just take a moment to stop and look. And so every day, especially when I'm out in the streets, out at the grocery store, I'm constantly looking for God. And I met God the other day in this woman who was sitting outside of the grocery store and she had all of these bags at her feet. It was cold. And she asked if I had any spare change. And I said, well, you know, I'm going into the grocery store. Can I just get you something to eat? Well, what do you want to eat? And she said she wanted a ham sandwich. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, tell me, what's your name? And her name is Helga. And she had this really thick kind of Eastern European accent. But she said, you know, I, I would love a ham sandwich and maybe a bottle of water. So I go in the store and I get the stuff that I went to the store for and I pick out a couple of ham sandwiches and a big bottle of water, and I found some of those Lunchable crackers, and I threw in a, a thing of Kit Kat chocolate bars because I thought, you know, Helga would probably enjoy something sweet. And so I put that all in a bag, and I was walking outside the grocery store back to Helga. And even before I got to her, she was holding out her hands with these little bracelets and I was going to wear the bracelet today but I forgot she had these three little bracelets in her hand and she said please I want you to have these and I said no oh no Helga you keep them they're yours but here's your ham sandwich and she said no please take one and so I picked one and I was reflecting on that later and I thought here is God because Helga had such trust that I would come back with food that, right. you know, I could have left. I could have just said, okay, I'll go get you something and then just snuck out. But she was ready 
for me to come back with food. And I thought, that is faith right there. That is an image of how we are to be in relationship with God. And so if we can help seekers just recognize that God is acting in everything, it's it's us who sometimes limit the way we see the world right. and define things as that's holy and that's not holy, but that's not what our church teaches. It's God has infused everything with God's right. presence. Right. God is everywhere. It's mm-hmm. not just something from the catechism. And the thing I would point out or that struck me in my dealing with seekers is a lot of them tend to be head people like me. So I know the limitations and downfalls. And what you described as the process I want to point out to any seeker listening is you have to be in touch with your feelings, which head people are not. We stuff those things down and, well, you know, in my materialistic, reductionistic scientific education, if I can't put it in my, under my microscope, it's not real. Well, of course, that's not true because, you know, you don't send your girlfriend a valentine saying that when I see you, my galvanic skin response changes and my my left ventricle, cre- you know, I mean, it's just, it's not the right language. We, you know, science is a wonderful thing. Math is a wonderful thing. But we have universities where we teach all these other things like poetry and music. And so- those are also truths yeah. and also doorways into the human experience. And you, we just have a large class of people today who have been sold this bill of goods that, hey, if it doesn't fit our crude little instruments that we've developed at this point in history, it doesn't exist. Well, you know, and I can remember personally a priest when I first heard this and I said, so you're saying, you know, this is a feeling thing. And he said, yeah. And I pushed back on that being a head guy. And he said, well, if you want to, if you want to ever know God personally, you're going to have to get over that and get in touch with your feelings, I'm afraid. (laughs) And I can remember sitting down saying, do I want to know God enough to change and get in touch? You know, and I said, well, yes, I do. And that's when I started working on me. But I want to point out this feeling thing, which we are dismissive of, and seeing things around us and examining them. And Mark is probably a better expert than any of us on this. There's a great prayer that you reference called the examine, which is a mm-hmm. daily review. You take a couple minutes, at least twice a day you know, or a quick one many times a day, where did I see God? Where, you know, where was God in that moment, that interaction, that encounter? So I think that's a a great thing that you've shared with our seekers who may be listening, that this is how it's done. And of course, the other piece is you need that person to teach you, well, you got to know where to look and you got to have an idea how God operates based on the history and scripture and everything like, well, this is what kind of stuff God does. This is... And and make those connections like this woman is like God because she's, you know, it's like, well, if I'm talking about, you know, the universe, as you often hear today, the universe gave me a present. And of course, I always think, well, I had astrology and I'm pretty sure the universe is trying to kill us actually right now. But okay, (laughs) the universe is giving you presents. But uh, I just think that's a wonderful thing for people to pay attention. I just want to underline it. There's feelings and to be in touch with them and to review your day and where was God and it is amazing all of a sudden. It's like if I was to say to a person, how many green things are in the room? It doesn't change whether you are tuned in or not. The number of green things in the room were there whether you were aware of them or not. Yeah. So if you start yeah. looking for green things on the regular, you start to notice the green things. Yeah. doesn't make them appear. It's there. So that was very well done. Thank you, Diana. Yeah. Thank oh, you. Well, I think that's, that's like muscle memory, right? It's uh, all the athletes go and tell you about the more you do things, that your muscles actually anticipate that kind of action. It's the same yeah. thing spiritually, I think. We, you've got to make the uh, neural connections. At this type of spirituality leads to, or this type of uh, activity leads to this type of uh, relationship with God. Yeah. No different than an athlete for whatever sport you're in. Yeah, no, absolutely, Deacon Tom. And I mean, so our training is the liturgy. That is constantly how we're training ourselves into the habit of noticing God in the concrete, God in the visible and the tangible. I mean, that's what we mean by sacramental, that God 
encounters us through our human senses and the things around us, including creation. And I, I would add, Deacon Dennis, that they, it's not just all feeling. It, I have not met one astronomer or mathematician or science person who is really into their craft and their field who does not have a spiritual sense that there is mm. something bigger to the world. In your beautiful little book of prayers, you have a prayer with the woman at the well. I mm -hmm. think that ties into what you were talking about just a moment ago about talking to the stranger. Yeah. Yeah. And now as we move from ordinary time into Lent, talking about how Lent is an opportunity for us to follow our baptismal call. All right. And I think yeah. that includes reaching out to those in the margins. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The, that story of the woman at the well. So it, that is one of our premier gospel stories from John in the baptismal catechumenate because it's the first gospel that we proclaim during the rite of the first scrutiny, which is one of the rituals for people who are on the verge in that liminal space again, on the verge of entering into the font at the Easter Vigil. And so during Lent, on the third Sunday of Lent, we proclaim that gospel reading of that encounter. And I always thought to myself, every time I, I hear that reading, I thought, what would have happened if the Samaritan woman ignored Jesus? Or she saw him sitting there at the well and she decided, no, not today. I'm, I'm all peopled out. I don't want to talk to anybody. I'm just going to go back. Or if Jesus didn't go any deeper into the conversation with her, what would have happened if they had treated that encounter the way we often treat encounter with strangers, where we just pass them by and we don't get, we don't take that perfect opportunity, that Kairos moment for God to catch us. And so, so that's where that prayer came from. What would have happened? And since this may be dropping somewhere around Valentine's Day, <laughs> and Dennis mentioned Valentine's Day earlier, I just thought we should follow up on that. And is there a place in our faith to, to love the people we love yes. <laughs> on Valentine's Day? Yeah. Sometimes they're the hardest people to love. So, yeah, I wrote a prayer for people in love. It was a prayer for a couple celebrating their wedding anniversary. And I thought, oh, there, there's the blessing prayer in the rite of marriage, the order of matrimony. It's a new prayer for celebrating wedding anniversaries. But I had written this before the new translation. And, you know, so I wrote about that. But then I thought, I know so many people in my life who hate Valentine's Day because they're not in love. They're not, they don't have mm. a person in their life that is like that. And on that day, they are surrounded by reminders of that. And what could we say as a church, as people of faith for that, you know? And we honor that state, that single state that enables a person to love many people, to love in a different way, to love in a, maybe even one of my friends who's a theologian said, you know, friendship, I think is, she said, friendship, I think is the basis for every other kind of relationship because mm. you can't enter into marriage. You can't enter into a committed relationship without knowing how to be a friend. So the church really should honor friendship as the basis for love. And so I, I wrote a prayer for people who have their hearts broken on Valentine's Day huh. to see what is the grace happening in that moment. So nice. maybe I'll just read it. We would love for you to read that prayer for us, please. So this is from a book I wrote for Liturgical Press. The book is called The Work of Your Hands. And they wanted me to collect 
all of the prayers that I had written over the years, which were prayers that don't exist anywhere else, prayers that we often overlook opportunities to pray for or to bless. And so this is called Valentine's Prayer When Your Heart is Broken. It's February again, God, and I'm surrounded by reminders of my broken heart. Like fancy cards and paper cutouts, we give away our hearts so easily. And too often in return, we receive only broken promises. But you, O Lord, are ever faithful. You who heal the brokenhearted and bind up all our wounds. Bind me now to your son's sacred heart, that the ache I feel may draw me closer to those whom he loved, even when they turned away. Let my heart not become a heart of stone, roughened by bitterness or calloused by doubt, but let it be a heart of flesh, strengthened by your unbreakable promise, willing to give ready to forgive, and open to trying again. Amen. 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 Diana, thank you so much for this. Do you have anything else you'd like to leave us with? Because this has been a wonderful hour and been so meaningful to me, and I hope our listeners as well. Well, I am so grateful for this conversation. This is one of the things that is so beautiful about our faith, that we could talk in easy ways with one another about how God appears in our life, about the joys and struggles that we all have, and to find grace and beauty and all of that, even the hard parts, especially the hard parts. So I'm grateful for this opportunity, and I am praying for the Paulists. I'm praying for your ministry, and I ask you to pray for our ministry at Team RCIA. And I I pray for all of those who are seeking the next road that God is calling them to. Thank you so much. We will absolutely pray for you every day. Yay. Thank you. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulist Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, deacons, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.